Welcome to Mind Rolling. This is Raghu Marcus with my partner, David Silver. Hi, David. And we have uh, a wonderful guest today um, who's a very, very old friend and who, who we may not see each other and probably haven't seen each other in many, many, many years. And it's Joseph Goldstein. And uh, welcome to the show, Joseph. Thanks. Um, Joseph has a new book, and that's something we want to get into, called Mindfulness, which is an extraordinary book that David and I have been talking about for weeks, and over a month, because we were going to do this some time back. And thank God, Joseph, you went on retreat, so we were able to really get through the book. Um, but I'm going to, um, I want to mention one thing uh, in, in relation to uh, our meeting, Joseph. In 19, uh, we were in India at the same time, same time as Sharon was, and I think Jack, maybe a, a little later, I can't remember, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Sal- Salzberg, and Joseph is part of the trio that brought back uh, Vipassana insight meditation to the, to the West, this uh, primary um, factor in, in, in revealing this fantastic uh, practice and teaching which, uh, as many of you who listen to Mind Rolling out there, know that all of us love and light bhaktiers that uh, were with Ramdas when he went back to India the second time and are de- devotees of Nimkaroli Baba, for some reason, all of us, I'd say, well, all of us is maybe big, but certainly a large part of our group ended up doing Vipassana courses around Bodh Gaya at the time, and in other place, places in India. Excuse me. So, Joseph, in 1972, in January or February, I think it was around February, you were in uh, Bodh Gaya doing courses, and f- I don't know how it happened, but I actually remember the moment you introduced me to Munindra, and uh, Goenka and Munindra were the two uh, teachers that we all had back then, and uh, you brought me into his room, and we sat there for some time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <How> <laughs> well, about you have that? a better memory than I do. <laughs> well, uh, those were the days. <laughs> those were the days. Well, you know, it was a special moment because uh, Munindra, just, uh, you know, this is uh, off the cuff here a little bit, but when we, uh, when I first arrived in India at the end of '70, um, the, and Ramdas and that gang had uh, done those courses in Bodh Gaya, they had made an arrangement with uh, Munindraji to come to a place called Kosani, way up in the Himalayas, yes. Yes. to uh, to teach uh, meditation. And it did not happen, I believe, because his mother was ill at the time. But as a result. Um, uh, we all did go up. That is where I did get introduced to Vipassana, and it was more through uh, Ramdas actually uh, showed me, you know, the basics, you know, the the uh, anapana and the one pointed, uh, you know, the beginnings of it, which uh, have stayed with me to to this day and been an important part of my life. So Manindra, you know, that was waiting for Manindra, waiting yep, for Manindra. Yep. And then finally I met him <laughs> through you. So that was just uh, that. So one of the things we do here, Joseph, um, uh, we like to hear from you. How did you get the, the clarion call, shall we put it? Or when you were, you know, a teenager in America, what was your situation like? What was your life like? What were the factors that led you on this path and to India eventually? Mm-hmm. 
Well, in, in my high school years, uh, I didn't know anything about it. And I can't say that I had any uh, <clears throat> budding interest in those years. Uh, I grew up in a really small town in the Catskill uh, resort area, New York. Uh, then I went to uh, Columbia and started studying philosophy. And one of the courses that I took was in Eastern philosophy, and we were actually studying the Bhagavad Gita. And that was the very first beginning of just feeling this amazing connection. Uh, there was one line in that, mm. that even then as a college sophomore, you know, not knowing really anything about this, one line for some reason jumped out at me and said, uh, to act without attachment to the fruit of the action, you know, to act without attachment to the results. And it's amazing that not knowing really anything about this, somehow that that one line resonated. Mm. Then uh, a little bit later, still just before I graduated, one of the first Peace Corps groups uh, was training at Barnard College, the women's, at that time, the women's uh, part of Columbia. And I met up with some of the Peace Corps people uh, who were in training and I just got the, the bug. I thought, this'll be great. I was really anxious to just go out and see the world, explore the world. Mm. And the Peace Corps seemed like a great way to do it. So I applied. I actually applied to go to East Africa. Uh, I had this notion of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and whatever, but they ended up sending me to Thailand, which was which was a very good karmic, uh, karmic uh, fruit. And in Thailand, I was teaching right in Bangkok, and I started going to um, discussion groups in the Marble Temple, which is a famous temple there for for Westerners. And having studied philosophy, I would go to these groups and I would ask endless questions. And people stopped coming to the group because I was going. You know, it's like one of those situations. When is this guy going to be quiet? So one of one of these one of the monks who was teaching, I think out of some desperation, said, "Joseph, why don't you try meditating?" <laughs> you know. And at that time, I didn't know anything. I was just I was 21, 22 years old. You know, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, but I was excited. It was kind of exotic. I was in the Far East you know, Buddhist temples, monks, it was all it was all very new and exciting. So he gave me just the, the very basic instructions. I get all my little paraphernalia together. I set my alarm clock for five minutes. Because I, don't want, I don't want to sit too long. But I was so excited. Something happened in that in that five minutes. And not that it was any great enlightenment. But I saw even then, that there was a way to look into the mind as well as looking out through it. Mm. And that was so exciting. It was like turning in place, you know. I got so excited by all this that I started inviting my friends to come over and watch me meditate. <laughs> 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 but, uh, they didn't come back too often, of course. Uh, <laughs> but that, that was kind of the level of enthusiasm for this whole new adventure, you know, of understanding the mind. Then when I finished the Peace Corps, I came back to the States and tried to practice by myself and realized that um, I really needed a teacher. <clears throat> you know, I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was mixing up watching the breath and mantras and third eye and just everything, you know, I had heard. 
So I went back to I went back to Asia, stopping in India, and I traveled around looking for a teacher, and ended up in Bodh Gaya, which uh, where we met several years later. And what really hooked me on this practice, you know, of mindfulness inside practice, I met Munindraji. He was just back from Burma at the time. He said one thing that uh, totally, totally uh, connected with me. He said, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. That's all. There was nothing to join. There was no big ritual or ceremony, nothing. It was just that straightforward common sense. How else can we understand the mind unless we sit down and observe it? Mm. So that, that was the beginning. And just from that very first moment, I knew this was, this was what I wanted to really devote my life to. Mm. So it's... <laughs> The long, short story. Right. The short, long story. Right, right. And um, but then you stayed for some time. Yeah. That second time, right? And yeah, I was there for most of the next seven years. Back to the states a couple of times uh, to work, make some money. Uh, but mostly, I was in India. And where did you? Where were you mostly in India? Well, time? in in the winter months, and you know, in the cooler months, I was in Bodh Gaya. And then, of course, as you know, the summer can be brutally hot there yeah. and the plains. And so we would go up to the mountains. Uh, mostly I went up to uh, the hill station called Dalhousie. And a lot of us from Bodh Gaya went up there and just continued the practice. Beautiful, you know, with the, the view, of, yeah. view of the high Himalayan peaks. And, yeah. and, and it was at that time uh, that you met uh, your... Confreres, which Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg. <clears throat> Jack actually did not spend time in India during those years. Uh, that's where I met Sharon. Right. Uh, Jack, I met. It wasn't until '74 when I came back to the States. I first went to India in 1967. Uh, but I met Jack and Dan Goldman and a lot of the, a lot of the gang. Right. <laughs> and Ramdas, of course, in 1970 in Bodh Right. He actually, of course, he came with this huge entourage of people. I had been there, you know, at this Burmese uh, rest house where we all stayed with, you know, seven people, ten people. <laughs> we felt that was crowded. Ramdas comes with a hundred people. <laughs> and it became just a, a really huge, uh, huge scene. Right. Yeah, it was beautiful. Mm. And But you did meet up at that time, I know that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was a great, it was a great uh, connection, because I had no idea who Ramdas was before then. Of course, here he was known, but I had been in India when Be Here Now came out. Right. And so I, who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, who's who's yeah. coming here? Right. Oh, unbelievable. Um, yeah. and, and just and to, uh, I got to say thank you yeah. for uh, for staying the course there, because uh, if we bring this into the present, I just finished your book. Mindfulness, which is subtitled A Practical Guide to Awakening. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the most practical book on the subject that I've ever read. Uh, it took me a while, um, but for those of you that are listening, uh, get this book if you're at all interested in freeing your mind. And that's a very cliched way of describing a, a volume which has got so much detail, but it is practical and pragmatic. Because at the end of reading it, uh, Joseph, I found that it wasn't like I remembered every detail, every list, the five this, the four that, whatever. But something came over me 
which was a, a, a sort of a, a, a wordlessness, actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, not mindlessness, but a form of mindfulness in the sense that you cover in this book. Every twist and turn of kind of uh, not only getting into mindfulness, but avoiding the deceptions, mm -hmm. deep deceptions. Uh, one teacher once said to you, uh, according to the book, you're just, don't get too involved in subtlety. You'll go mm -hmm. further and further into this pit of subtlety. Yeah. You, must, you must simplify. <laughs> and one of the things I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, was it okay? Uh, you do describe marvelously the intricacies of moving towards liberation and bare aware awareness. One of the emotions that I went through, and I have been through before in, in encountering this kind of, of teaching, is that I suddenly get breathless and frightened. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, I've really got to give up every attachment I have. I really, I mean, I've given up quite a few because of my cholesterol. But <laughs> I've now got to give up, you know, uh, someone asked His Holiness recently what he, whether he was going to watch the Academy Awards, and he said, no, it's a waste of time. And that affected me profoundly, because you hear so many people in the modern age saying, no, I watch movies, and I do this, and I do that, and I get laid, and all of it. Um, it was refreshing to hear uh, our great teachers say that. I wanted to ask you, how do you, and someone encountering this teaching, how do you get away from that breathless sort of fear of nihilism and there being nothing, and that the whole thing works towards nothing and no mind, uh, how can one avoid the nervousness that I definitely encountered, mm -hmm. uh, thoroughly enjoying and imbibing your book on a level I couldn't believe how deep it got to me, but nevertheless, there was that nervousness. Do you know what I'm talking you know, Obviously, yeah. you know what I'm talking uh, about. Can you I relate to that for a bit? Yeah. Uh, well, first to say that the nervousness and the anxiety is really uh, about your idea of what happens rather than what actually happens. So you have this kind of notion that somehow freeing the mind or coming to a place of stillness or peace or quiet or openness, whatever word you like, somehow is going to be a nihilistic something or other, gray blob of existence. Uh, well, that's all your imagination of what it's going to be like. Actually, all that one gives up is greed and hatred and ignorance. So if you kind of imagine the mind, and, and you could think of greed as addiction, you know, not, not so doesn't have to do with kind of just the living fully in our life and enjoying the pleasures as they come. But can we experience all of this without being addicted? You know, and as is not hard to imagine, you know, non-addictiveness is a much freer, more open space that allows us to enjoy <clears throat> and to be fully present for our lives, but without that grasping. And so really all you're giving up is suffering. You, you know, we're, give, we're giving up the causes or we're giving up those states of mind that cause us suffering and distress. Uh, and, and what's left? Qualities of love, compassion, kindness, peace, ease. <laughs> Uh, you know, so when you think of it in that way, it's just a reminder not to get too hooked in to your idea of what it may be like, but actually uh, begin to taste the experience of that. One way of working is knowing all this is not to say that the 
anxiety or fear is just going to disappear like that. And so then the question is, how do you work with it when it actually comes? Whether it's about this or anything else. You know, I worked, as you may remember from the book, uh, I worked a lot with fear in my practice. That, that was a primary emotion, you know, deeply, deeply conditioned. It took me a long time to really come to understand how it operates and how I can begin to be free in it. And it really has to do with acceptance. So, you know, when those feelings come up as you were reading the book or, or in anything else, those feelings come up, can you apply the mindfulness to that? You know, can you actually relax and feel those feelings without aversion, without resistance, without pushing it away and let them wash through rather than constellate around them or be identified with them? Uh, just one image which might help remind you of how we can be with these difficult states is how you might be with a child that's feeling fear or anxiety. You know, I think, I think we would all have a very natural, easeful response in terms of just being there, you know, and say, it's okay, it's okay to feel that. You wouldn't be condemning the kid for having the feeling and you wouldn't be thinking, oh, you shouldn't feel that. You know, it's just that gentle, warm acceptance and, and encouragement, you know, for, for the child to, okay, just be with it. And it's, it's odd that we, <clears throat> we actually know, you know almost, almost intuitively, we know how to be with it when it's a child. And yet it's very difficult often for people to apply that very same understanding to ourselves. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's really the practice. Yes, yes. That brings in, of course, compassion and uh, making yeah. friends there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I want to talk about a, a, the, a concept that's the, it's the very, very beginning of the book. And it's around ardency, mm. which is, uh, to me, it's a tough term. I'm just going to read what you say. Ardent implies a balanced and sustained application of effort. But ardent also suggests warmth of feeling, a passionate and strong enthusiasm or devotion because we realize the value and importance of something. I think that is a very, uh, that statement that you're making here is extraordinarily important. Um, and I think for many people, and, I'm, and, and people who, again, don't, ne you know, many of our uh, listeners don't necessarily follow any particular path, not Buddhist, not Hindu, not Christianity or Judaism, but they want to know how to get how to deal with fear, as you were just discussing. And I think um, where I get stuck myself with ardent and ardency mm -hmm. is, is the, the balanced and sustained application of effort. It's that effort. And that, <laughs> when that effort is connected with the I, me, mine part, uh, then, uh, you know, it's, it's totally counterproductive. Can you absolutely. talk about that for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Anything connected with I mean mind is yeah, counterproductive, right. Right. whether it's effort or anything else. I'm glad you bring it up because because in English the word effort has so many connotations, you know that, uh, and many of which uh, are not that helpful, because for many people effort implies a striving or what I call efforting, you know, and as you say, it kind of suggests a lot of I in in that. Mm. I'm going to get something. 
the word effort is is really the translation of a Pali word, or you know, an ancient Indian language that the teachings uh, uh, was spoken in, is virya, and virya it really means courage, it mm. means perseverance, it means strength, and I like those words, especially courage, you know, because it implies that heartful. I don't know, kind of that heartful engagement with life, you know, and you mentioned that a lot of listeners are not particularly identified with any Buddhism or Hinduism or Christianity. And for me also, it's really the same. Mm. I, I always find it a bit strange, you know, when I'm called a Buddhist, even though I've devoted my life to the teachings, mm. because <laughs> it's not about that. You know, it's about understanding. It's about understanding the mind, understanding the heart. And we don't need any label, but it does take courage, you know, because we uncover a lot as we look. Uh, as one one of one of the lines from the book Zorba the Greek, you know, by Nicholas Kazantzakis, self knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> you know, and I think that's borne out for people who get involved in meditation or introspection. Because we just see a lot, you know, we see, we see a lot. Mm. So it, that's what Arden means. It's not so much efforting. In fact, efforting becomes counterproductive, as you say. Yeah. It's just that willingness to engage in a sustained way. Mm. Uh, I'll just tell you a little story here. Uh, and it's about something Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji said. And it's through our close, close friend, Krishna Das. Mm-hmm. He was in Bombay, Mumbai, at one time, and he got lucky. He found Maharaji, uh, who was staying with some people, and he was uh, in a hotel. Maharaji actually came over, and he was hanging out in the room. There was just Krishnadas and uh, uh, another Indian devotee, who was the translator. And he was kind of a businessman. He was, uh, you know, very, quote-unquote, modern and, and, and so on. And... They were just sitting there, and then suddenly, Maharaji said, "Courage is everything." Uh -huh. And this guy, whose name was Barman, said, "No, no, but Baba, it's uh, you know, it's grace. It's grace. Uh -huh. You know, obvious uh -huh. thing to say to a supposed yes. Hindu guru, yes. which yes. he talk about not being." Uh, <laughs> Not be, you couldn't name him that or yes, anything, yes. right? Um, and then uh, you know, Krishna is just sitting there, and he told this story uh, recently at one of the retreats we had with Ramdas. And uh, after uh, Barman said this thing, Maharaji again repeated, "Courage is everything." Yes. And that uh, so when I read this, you know, where uh, spiritual ardency is the wellspring of a courageous heart. Then I was able to connect way more yes. with with it uh, than I did in the previous uh, paragraph, which I just yeah. read. Uh, I'm glad you bring that up because I, I think it is a better, more all-encompassing uh, word to use. And I think people respond to it more. Yeah, and I think it's absolutely, yeah. crucially important just because we do uncover, you know, yes. so yeah. much stuff as we yeah. as we get. I mean, you know, just going to a... My first Vipassana course, I mean, I, you know, I, well, 
There's nothing to say except to say to everybody, a lot of stuff comes up yes. from the depths of your yeah. past and God knows past lives or whatever. And it is, a, I mean, I don't think there's anything as difficult as, as doing, uh, you know, yeah. these very intensive courses. Um, by the way, I got to interject here. Uh, anybody who's interested, uh, Jos- Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg have Insight Meditation Society, uh, IMS, uh, and it's in Barrie, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And you can go IMS. What is it? I am. What's the, uh, it's, the, web- the website is actually dharma.org. D-H-A-R-M-A. Okay, dharma.org. So go to dharma.org and you can uh, uh, get into uh, one of these courses. They're life-changing and um, they will introduce you to a way to be able to really uh, have some self-introspection and and be able to clean up a lot of stuff as you go through and and then have something on a day-to-day basis that, that is a real platform or a vantage point uh, out of mind ego uh, so it's an important thing and by the way I have to Joseph we we are the these the two of us are the worst marketers in the world <laughs> yeah, but we're we, bad. The, the, uh, for these podcasts uh, the the way that uh, we get supported these podcasts are free anybody can stream or download them uh, we have a place where people can donate we have a place where they can buy a t-shirt and we also are an affiliate of Amazon. So when you go buy Joseph's book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, please go through our portal uh, uh, to Amazon. In fact, bookmark it. So when you buy, as Dave says, when you buy your frigida- your refrigerator, your new uh, air conditioner or whatever, because Amazon sells everything, you know, not just Joseph's book. So uh, please do go there. And we thank you for the support. Um, Dave. Yeah, and Audible. We're with Audible, too, oh, yes. which is uh, a great organization. They give you a, a free trial to begin with, and if you like it, you keep buying, and we get some money from that, too. Um, just to make a little move here, there are, you know, this is a, mindfulness is a long book, Joseph's book, but there are pithy things that jump up every so often that just stop, stop me in my tracks. And one of them was kind of a Ramana Maharshi type of statement. I'm not sure who said it, you'll tell me. And the statement was... Um, what you're looking for is who's looking. Mm-hmm. And that just, you know, I've heard, mm-hmm. you know, we've all <laughs> like heard the Ramana Maharshi stuff, and that is equally effective, of course. But uh-huh. in the middle of the book, when I read that, I actually put the book down and just closed my eyes and really glided on that for a while because yes. even though it just really sort of exploded the myth of I, me, mine very quickly. And even if it only lasted a few seconds, it did last a few seconds. Yes, yes. And I'd love you to to amplify that a little bit for for us all. Right. Actually, it, it comes from uh, a book written by a writer who who goes by the name of Wei Wu Wei. Mm, it's yeah. actually I, I don't know whether he was English or Irish or I forget exactly, but he he lived in the Far East for a long time, and he clearly had some kind of awakening because his writings are full of things like that. You know where he really he really understood something very profoundly, and they're wonderful books. I, <clears throat> uh, so what you're looking for is what is looking, you know, and it's it's really, mm. as you say, a very pithy, we could say a pith instruction for looking at the nature of the mind. You know, it just turns the attention from the object, whether it's you know feeling something in the body or a thought or a sound 
to the very nature of awareness itself. It just turns the, turns the mindfulness towards awareness. And it reveals, you know, when we can really settle into that, it reveals that, I don't know, we could say that empty knowing nature. Because when you look for the mind, as I've mentioned elsewhere in the book, when you look for it, there's nothing to find. You know, there's not something we can find and say, yes, this is the mind. And yet the knowing is, is always there. And so it's that kind of union of emptiness and awareness that's revealed and, and very clearly pointed out in a statement like that. And it really takes us away from that striving, efforting, egoful mind. You know, it just drops us right back. What we're looking for is not out there. It is what is looking. Yeah. Uh, you so know, it, I'm glad you picked up on that. Well, it, it helps. And it reminded me of, I'm a big fan, if you can use that word, of Tulku Urgin Rinpoche. Yes, so, yes, yes. Love him. I've read all his books, or all yes. the ones I can get. And he uses the phrase, I'm sure he's not the only one, uh, cognizant emptiness. Yes. And that had the same effect on me. It was like, yes. okay, it's not empty, it thinks. Yes. Or it does something, it knows, it's aware. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You don't, you know, you're not just dust and it's kind of <laughs> gone. Yeah. And it was the same sort of effect on me, and that's why this book of yours, and I, you know, I know your other books do similar, have similar effects on people, because I've talked to people about it. This book, um, which I really, I don't want to sound like a, a punter or a promoter here, but I really recommend it to any of you who are in any way struggling with, with the, the business of, of, of detachment and finding, finding that free space. Uh, I encourage you to read it because it's like going to a whole summer course mm. or more and, and taking in the step-by-step -step, uh, graduation. Another thing you, you, you say in the book, which I love, is that, you know, you have revelations, but a lot of small ones, but then it's gradualization mm -hmm. and it's, it's steady practice. And that's something which, you know, I could use a lot more of, to be honest. And the way you put it, I don't remember the exact way, but... You make it clear that uh, this is work, mm. and I guess it, I guess it gets back to courage again, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Courage and, and a kind of steadfastness. It, it's like I really see this kind of understanding. You know, and you could call it spiritual practice, or you could call it just you know the path of the path of wisdom, the path of, the path of understanding ourselves. It's not a hobby. <laughs> you know, it really has to be undertaken. Uh, not not as just in, in a in a superficial way. It's it's profound. I've you know as probably both of you. I've been practicing now for you know over forty years, forty five years, and it still feels like I'm at the beginning. Yes, mm -hmm. you know because it's so vast and it's just this. You know I love I love going to planetariums. Mm. because you know you get these journeys through outer space that is just. Is just fantastic, you know, and you see the immensity. Well, going inward, it has that same vastness. It's like as vast as it is outside, that's how vast mm. it is inside. Mm. And, and so that's what gives it uh, this ongoing interest and in, in enthusiasm and courage. And mm. yeah, it's a wonderful, fantastic journey. By the way, David mentioned, uh, you know, those of you out there that, uh, you know, are dealing with uh, attachment, fear, anger, uh, all of it, uh, really uh, could uh, use this book. And those of you who aren't dealing 
with any of those things, we want you to write into us, and we are going to do a podcast with you. Okay? Tell us where you live. Yeah, and yeah, we, in fact, you'll be our next uh, guru. Um, I just want to jump in here for yeah. one minute because, David, Please. you used a word that I want to clarify a bit. It talked about detachment, and often people associate, you know, this whole path and the meditation with becoming more detached, and. I think there's a better word in English than that, because for a lot of people, detachment implies a kind of separation or pulling back or maybe even indifference. I think a better word to describe what we're practicing is non-attachment, because non-attachment is not a pulling back from experience. It's simply not holding on mm. to experience. Mm. And I think that distinction, as we use these words in English, uh, can be very helpful for people, because often people will just well, I don't want to become detached, you know, and and understandably, because it's not about that kind of withdrawal, but it is about not grasping, not clinging, not holding on. Um, there is, uh, there's a, uh, David, I'm, uh, we have so much, I mean, there's so much here, <laughs> Joseph, so it's there is. There's a lot in the book. There's a lot. <laughs> um but there's a couple of things that I especially think that our uh, our friends out there would appreciate from, from this book. And um, there's one little passage I'm going to read. The great power of mindfulness here, as with desire or, ang or anger, is that we can be with all these states when they arise, and we can stay aware of them until they disappear. Mindfulness and bare attention reinforce our insight into their impermanence. And we realize that we don't have to fulfill desire or act on anger or indulge the sleepiness in order for it to pass away. We see that these states all come and go by themselves. I think that's a very, very important uh, teaching um, uh, around allowing, allowing it to be. Can yeah. you just elaborate a little bit on that, Joseph? <laughs> well, as you were reading that, uh, the thought that was going through my mind was, did I write that? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> because it, it really it does. I mean, it highlights kind of the essence of the insight. The, you know, it's called insight meditation. Yeah. Sometimes you say, well, what's the insight? One of the most profound insights that happens, as, as you just read, uh, is the understanding, is, and not conceptual, but the, the lived understanding of the impermanence of whatever arises. Now, there's, one, there's one statement in the Buddhist teachings, one sentence that was repeated often, and many people got enlightened just hearing this one mm. sentence. So get ready. Okay. This, this is your chance. <laughs> <laughs> whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Mm. I mean, so simple. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Mm. What has the nature to arise? Everything. Mm. Right? And so this is just pointing us to that, uh, to that insight, to that understanding, whatever it is, all these mind states, the desire, the anger, or the fear, or the love, or the compad, those two arise and pass away. Mm. You know? So when we really see that over and over again, the mind the mind comes into a place of much greater ease. And then we can really choose, of all those passing states, 
which are wholesome, which lead to more happiness, and we cultivate them. Mm. Which don't, which lead to more suffering, and we let them pass through. We don't hold on. So it's, it is very pragmatic. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, if we want to be more peaceful, this is the way to do it. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, when people ask me, well, you, you know, all those years, you know, that you, you go back to, you know, you were a kid and you met this incredible being and well, what do you got out of it now? Mm-hmm. What can you say for yourself? <laughs> and this passage is something I can say for myself yes. in that over this span of time, the realization of in infinitesimally, bit by bit by bit, that cuts down the reaction yes. times. And uh, and uh, and also brings in allowing spaciousness in in yes. your life, yes. just a simple thing like that. Nothing religious, yep. spiritual, or anything. Just that fact is a huge, huge thing. So yep. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know that particular passage was uh, really spoke to me. Yep. Uh, the other thing I want to mention before Dave jumps back in, um, and it's around um, habits and patterns. Uh, you talk about later in the book. Um, I think that is absolutely a key factor in our lives that we have built these habits and patterns or they have been built around us. We have, you know, there was a foundation when we were born because we come into a certain kind of family and, and, and habitual stuff arises. And then we finish that house ourselves uh, and talk about how to really uh, be able to get some kind of fulcrum uh, that leverages leverages us out of this uh, habitual pattern stuff yeah i mean that's it's a really important point because as you say uh something we know but i think really don't fully appreciate is the incredible power of habit Mm. there's a kind of inertia that happens in our lives and habits just roll along and it it's not always so easy to break a habit you know so I think that the, the practice or the, the cultivation of mindfulness helps in two ways. Uh, first, we begin just to be aware, okay, which habits are serving us and which are not. You know, because some habits are good. You know, we, we meditate every day and yeah. we get to the habit of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a good habit. Mm-hmm. You know, or we overeat and we do that habitually. That's not such a good habit. So the first thing is just to be aware, okay, what, you know, what is our pattern? Or, or several patterns. Then a very key element, and and um, this take this this takes uh, a lot of attentiveness, uh, is to begin to see the intention behind uh, or before the action, because the body by itself doesn't move. I mean, the hand doesn't go into the refrigerator just by itself. <laughs> You know, there, there's a desire, there's a wanting, there's an intention in the mind before the body moves. If we can first recognize, okay, which are the particular habits that we want to work on, you know, at a particular time, and then, you know, challenge ourselves in a way to become aware of the intention to do it before the action happens, in that moment of noticing the intention, uh, <clears throat> we really have the freedom to choose, do I want to do this or not? If we miss the intention, we find ourselves in the middle of the action. And even then, so even even if we do miss the intention, if we're aware mid-action, oh, I don't have to do this, 
you know, and kind of we can pull back. Uh, so it, it all really comes down to awareness, to mindfulness. Are we paying attention to the habit patterns of our lives or are we just acting them out? You know, we're kind of sleepwalking through life. And then there's the, what is the impetus to even hold that attention? Um, and, and a lot of times for, for many people, it's suffering. Absolutely. Know? And that is a motivating factor. And so we, I think motivation is, is something else to probably talk about. Yeah, I, mo- motivation is key. I mean, in, in some teachings, there's, there's one line which I really love a lot, where it says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Mm. You know, mm. big because the intention, the intention I talked about is really the, um, the mechanics of how things happen. There's an intention in the mind and then there's a, a movement following it. But motivation is the quality of mind around the intention. Okay, is the intention motivated by compassion or kindness? Is the intention to speak, for example, is the intention to speak motivated by irritation or annoyance mm. so the motivation is are those qualities of mind surrounding the intention mm. yeah that's it's the it's the motivation which determines the karmic fruit of the action you know is this going to bring a good result or a not so good result it's the motivation which determines that and in order to see motivation we need to be we need to be watching our minds mm. speech is a great arena for practice, you know, especially for lay people living in the world, active, engaged. We speak a lot. We're speaking all day long. I think very few of us have taken it on as a practice to notice the intention behind our, and the motivation behind our speech. You know, things just kind of tumble out. Yeah. Uh, and so I have just found this a, a tremendous area of practice and, um, it's it has such good results, mm. you know, when we can really choose to speak wisely rather than uh, without consideration. Yeah. And all you folks that uh, have relationships out <laughs> there, boy, that can be helpful advice Absolutely. and great work. Dave, your turn. Yeah. Well, at the end of the towards the end of the book, you you uh, delineate, delineate extremely helpfully again. Uh, not the rules, because they're not rules, but all about right speech and right livelihood mm-hmm. and right action and right thought. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's interesting because you read the whole book and you go through all these steps, which you will when you read it. And at the end, it sort of all crystallizes mm-hmm. in your explication of, of what does it mean? What, what are these truths? And what I came away with, um, maybe for the first time in, in deep clarity, was that if you don't do these things, your life is going to be a mess, you know, and, and it really is. And right livelihood is the one that I think most people have a, a bit of a, a struggle with. Because what does that mean? And uh, again, in the book, and I'd like you to get into this a little bit, right thought and, and, and right speech, maybe we can understand fairly easily. But right livelihood in the society we live in and, and the world we live in is maybe a little more of a, of a, a, a you know, a challenge. And I'd like you to speak to that. Uh, uh, about that, it, it's a really important question because you know a good part of our adult lives is spent in livelihood, is of how we're supporting ourselves and the work that we do. And sometimes people have the idea that right livelihood means, you know, 
becoming Mother Teresa-like or, you know, serving in some very obvious way the needs of people, which for people who are doing that, of course, it's tremendously inspiring and, you know, a great thing. But for many people, we're just, we're just engaged in ordinary jobs, you know. So right livelihood is really about the quality of heart and mind with which we're doing it. You know, in, in any kind of job, are we really motivated and acting out a sense of service? Are, are we doing it in order to be helpful to people in whatever we're doing? Uh, and when people are like that, you know, just the difference, you, you, you know, you, you call up and order something online. <laughs> the difference between somebody who is really particularly helpful you know, and just you, you feel that they want to help you as opposed to somebody who's abrupt or, you know, impatient. There's a huge difference in how we feel. And so can we be those people who are really out there doing whatever we do with an attitude of actually <laughs> the, the perfect tagline for all this is one of Ram Dass's books, the title of one of Ram Dass's books with Paul Gorman. How can I help? Yeah, I love that line. It's like, can we go through life and in our life, how can I help? And so that becomes that becomes kind of a whole uh, lifetime arena of practice. You know, it, it brings all this to life. Uh, and we have to remind ourselves again and again. You know, we, we fall back into old patterns uh, where we may become annoyed or impatient or whatever. Mm. But we remind ourselves, okay, how can I help in this situation? So I see right livelihood as being very, very broad, encompassing. I mean, it does it does mean that there are certain kinds of activities that we would really not engage in, you know, in terms of killing beings or, uh, you know, selling weapons. <laughs> I mean, so some of the very obvious things. But generally, you know, just in the ordinary livelihoods that people have, this mantra, how can I help? opens up a whole world mm. of understanding and practice. Mm. Absolutely. Um, well, we're getting uh, towards the end of our session, but uh, we, I mean, we can go on here hours, <laughs> Joseph. I mean, I have, t I had so many, you know, different uh, place marks in this uh -huh. book. Me that too. I, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, but I, I have one here that I think that absolutely has to be addressed. And it's, and it, and it's it's micro and macrocosm. I mean, it's uh, it's around compassion. Um, and in fact, uh, we're we're going to have a retreat uh, in a couple of weeks in Maui with Ramdas and Sharon Salzberg mm -hmm. and Jai Utah, actually. And uh, it's uh, the the uh, theme of it is compassion and adversity. Um, so I I have been you know finding so much in here that I want to bring up there because I'm going to moderate a couple of sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, but you talk in the beginning here about compassion, um, and you talk about the dichotomy of skillful and unskillful uh, action, and you talk about how cruelty, which is to cause harm to people, it is the disposition to give unnecessary pain and suffering. Cruelty is a feeling of extreme heartlessness. That is so much prevalent in our world today, and that is so much uh, um, hardship for 
you know, this new generation, can you imagine growing up? I mean, we grew up in, in the Vietnam War. I mean, we had, we, David and I talk um, you know, in many podcasts about the similarities of what we grew up in and mm-hmm. what's going on today with the wars and so on and the disparity of income and the environment and so on. Um, so th- this, 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 uh, the antidote that you talk about, which is compassion, is the antidote to this great destructive power. Mm-hmm. Can just talk a little bit about bringing that into our, our lives in the most practical way, just as you did with, uh, with Right Livelihood. Yeah. Uh, the doorway to compassion or the... the uh, you could say the doorway or the vehicle for uh, cultivating it. Yeah and having it grow in our lives, again, it comes back to courage in a way, mm. is the willingness to come close to suffering. That, that is the cause or the condition for compassion to arise. Now, this is often challenging because just as we very often don't like to be with our own suffering, we very often don't like to be with the suffering of others. You know, it can be unpleasant to come close to it. Uh, I'll just tell you one <laughs> One funny story in this regard, it was told to me by a friend about his grandfather riding in a car with his father, and it was on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. So they're riding in the car, and they're listening to the radio, and there's the announcement of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The first thing his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> now, now, World War II is a big thing to keep out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But it, it's that move of the mind. Oh, no, don't come close to the suffering. You know, right. We try to protect others and ourselves. Well, that closes off the door to compassion. Mm. You know, in India, I, I had a striking example of this. And watching both those tendencies in my mind, of opening and also closing off. You know, as mm. you may remember, yeah. the state of the dogs in India is really pitiful. Just my mind People. went right there yeah. when you said yeah. that. It's yeah. just, you know, mangeful and they're really starving. So we would be sitting in the tea shops, you know, in Bodhgaya, and very often there would be these, you know, terrible looking dogs scrounging around. And there were times when I could really let that suffering in and feel a huge amount of compassion for these animals and maybe, you know, throw them a little food or something. And at other times, I could see my mind, here I was having tea, enjoying the sweets, just not wanting to be bothered with it, just Mm -hmm. go away. And it's so interesting to watch that spectrum, you know, of how we relate to suffering. Do we let it in? Are we willing to come close? Or not, or at a particular time, are we setting up barriers and defenses? So it's it's just understanding that compassion doesn't happen accidentally, and, and it can be cultivated. You know, it's a state that we can learn, but it, it comes from that willing, okay, can I open to the suffering that's there, you know, and really come close to it. And we do that, of course, in meditation with our own suffering, whether it's a pain in the knee or, you know, the difficult mind states you described in the beginning. Or the suffering in the world. Mm. You know, can, can we let it in? 
uh, and that's a practice and and the challenge but it's it's really out of that that compassion flows naturally when we come when we're willing to come close to suffering yes we need to keep reminding ourselves too that that practice of meditation and that meditation can does not have to be necessarily this particular form. It can be any form. It can be chanting. It can be anything, as you yourself say in the yep. book. Uh, but there is a necessity to look inwardly, as you say. That yes. is what this is all about, uh, and it's always been about for, for all of us. And those of us that bumped into Ram Dass and as a result went to India way back when, and those of us that are bumping into him t- today, I mean, you can't believe, but... People are finding be here now today for the first time, and it's pretty crazy. Uh-huh. Um, but it is all about, oh, my God, There, it, just like you had when you did that meditation, there yeah. is a way to understand something yes. of myself. And there is a way to get a vantage point, which is not f- from being caught in everything of this world. And... Uh, and anger and lust and greed and so on and so forth. So, so that obviously is a big key. But again, um, for uh, th- those of you, those few of you that do have these issues, <laughs> do get this book. And again, all of you that don't, we want to hear from you. Uh, and uh, go to mindrollingpodcast.com uh, and you can see uh, Dave puts up uh, wonderful blogs and he comments on, on stuff that we're, we go through with the various people that we have on the show. And... Uh, you can also go through and find those portals and help us out uh, uh, continue the support that we've been getting. And uh, we can't thank you enough, Joseph. This is yeah. A- we've been talking about this for ages. Uh, I mean, yeah. Not to be too psychophantic, but I've been saying to Ruggo, when is this going to happen? I can't wait to do this. Because the book and other books by you and other statements, whatever, have always just clicked, just clicked some clarity, some bell. And we're just so grateful for you to do this, and and I'm I'm really happy about it. Thank yeah, well, you so I want, much. I, we have to we'll, uh, promise you'll come back, Joseph. You please. Come back. <laughs> it's great. I, you guys are great. Was, I love I love the conversation. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. All right, I thank you, and I thank you, David, and I thank you, everybody out there, uh, for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on Mind Rolling Podcast. Aloha. Oh,